You're listening to Bethany Radio. More content is available on iTunes or online at BethanyBattleLeroy.com. You can turn in the scriptures here to the book of Colossians. Uh, we're going to be reading a little bit from there this morning, Colossians chapter 2. Um, I'll start a little bit before that, but the, the chapter will be chapter 2, and we'll get into really, really verses 6 through 8. Uh, last week we started, if you're visiting with us, we're, we started just a, kind of an 11-part, I think it'll be 11 you know, leave it open, maybe 12, 13, but I think it'd be 11, a series on a new constitution the elders are proposing to us as a congregation to vote on in January. Last week, we just really covered why we exist. Do you guys have the picture of last week? I did get some some pictures in. I thought I'd put them both up here. Uh, Malachi, sorry, it's blurry, but Malachi wrote out for us First Peter 2, 1 through 10. That's where we were. So that was great. And then I just, I love this one from Madeline. I had to put this up here, that she knew what we were doing, the Constitution. It's great. So thank you for doing that, Madeline, and turning that in. So can't always get them all up there, but now they fit this week. So anyway, but that's where we were at. We're just starting, and this week we're, we're continuing in that, and we'll, we'll hear more about it in a little bit. Always my goal is to really quickly hear from God's Word first rather than mine. So we, we find ourselves here in the book of Colossians. I'm going to start in chapter 1, verse 24, and then I'm going to read uh, through verse 10 uh, in chapter 2, and you can follow along as we go. So starting in chapter 1, verse 24, just to give us a little context here. Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body, that is, the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the Word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but but now revealed to His saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy 
and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. Let me pray for us again. Lord, as we think of our next section in this proposed constitution, and as we have just read Your Word, and its focus, its glaring focus on the seed of the woman who's come, who's been revealed as Christ, Savior, Victor, Ultimate, Eternal King. Lord, again, may our eyes gaze back on Your glory and Your goodness. May we again turn. Lord, help our hearts and our minds that are so quick to wander and worry. We all struggle with anxiousness. And all sorts of things. Lord, may now in this hour that we have this time, may you lead us back to the fountain of life to you. And may we go out of here declaring the message, God's glorious. He's glorious. And his glory shone forth in your son. Guide our time together by your spirit. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. I mentioned we're going through this series on the proposed constitution um, my, again, my goal is just to teach through the various parts as we go. Last week, as we saw from uh, Malachi, we looked at First Peter chapter two, verses nine through ten. Peter was reminding the elect of God there. He was saying, "You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession." And we we pointed out there was a that there, so that why are we this people? Why are we chosen? Why are we people for God? So that they might. Proclaim the excellencies of Him who called them out of darkness into His marvelous light. And we really looked at our purpose statement. It's on the front of your bulletin, but we also have it up here, guys. If we can show that picture. Here it is. You've got it every week now in your bulletin as well. But it says Bethany Bible Church exists. Why do we exist? We exist to delight in, to display and declare the glory of God. And equip His people to spread that delight through the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Talked about our hearts delighting vertically in our God, worshiping Him. We, do, we exist to glorify God and to display His glory to one another as we obey Him and follow Him to one another here. And we go out to declare that glory to one another and to the, to the world. And part of that is an equipping ministry as well. To equip us to go spread that Gospel. But in order to delight and to declare and to spread, that, that means we understand who God is. That means we understand this gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and, and like I said, who God is. And so the question is this week, what do, believe, what do we believe? Last week, why do we exist? This week, what do we believe? We could look at this question of what do we believe and maybe we could answer Really, uh, simply, well, here's one simple answer. We, we believe the Bible. We could just say that. We could make that, take that on here. That's all we need. Or we could just say we, we believe in Jesus. We just take it on. Uh, it would be accurate. Don't hear me say that's not accurate, okay? It would be, but may not be the most helpful. Here's what one uh, person pointed out. Michael Bird says this. I'll quote him. He says, quote, the problem is that it is no good just to say 
we believe the Bible. Okay, without saying anything else. He says, noble as that might sound, it runs into several problems. The fact is that many groups claim to believe the Bible, including Baptists, Episcopalians, Catholics, Methodists, Presbyterians, Jehovah's Witnesses, Oneness Pentecostals, and many more. Yet you cannot help, he says, but notice that these groups do not always agree on what the Bible teaches. We would agree on that, right? He says most of the time these differences are fairly inconsequential, but other times the differences are absolutely gigantic. So, simply stating we believe the Bible or we believe Jesus, while very accurate, is perhaps less than helpful. What we're after is a bit uh, deeper. What do we believe as a church? What do we believe the Bible teaches regarding itself regarding the Bible. What does the Bible teach about the Bible? What does it teach about the Trinity, the Godhead, and even who God is? What does it teach about salvation? We just saying, give me Jesus. What, what does it teach about who is Christ? Is He eternal? Was He, was he born? Is he just, how, what do we believe about all these things? We want to base these answers to these questions, we want to base them on Scripture itself. But we've also produced a document, our statement of faith, that summarizes these core biblical doctrines. And that's what we're kind of getting at today. I'm going to look at Article 3. Harrison, do you want to grab these? Does anybody have need a constitution? You weren't here last week. Or you left it in a, in a chair and I grabbed it and, and recycled it. Okay, just put your hand. Harrison will give them to you. Okay. I think we should have enough so that you guys can follow along. We are on uh, just the first really uh, page of what's proposed here. We're on page three. If you want to look that up, we're at the bottom of it. Last week doing the preamble and the Article 1 and 2 and really this week Article 3. Okay. Anybody? Well, there was one over here. Okay. Are we out? Yeah, we're out. Okay. All right, we'll get more. We have friends. You have a friend. Okay. <laughs> okay, good. Good. Great. Here's uh here's article number three, statement of faith. Here's what we're saying, so let me just read it for you. And that's what we're looking at today. Next week we'll look at baptism, uh the ordinances, baptism, Lord's Supper, that sort of thing. But this week just article three. It says we affirm the Holy Bible as the inspired, inerrant word of God and the sole basis for our beliefs and actions. We have articulated our beliefs of core biblical doctrines in our statement of faith, which can be found below. Our statement of faith is not an inspired document, but is helpful for assistance in controversy and preventing theological drift. In the history of the church, these statements of faith They've been referred to as creeds. You might think of the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. That was back in, in AD 325. You might think of a catechism. Maybe some of you are familiar like with the Westminster Shorter or Larger Catechism around the year 1647. Uh, they've been referred to as uh, confessions of faith. I've got a little one up here. Uh, 1689, the second, second, conf- what is it? second London Baptist Confession of Faith. 1689, all these different confessions of faith. I think what holds all these in common 
is really uh, it's a desire of the church to formulate her beliefs of what is Scripture teaching. In one sense, these confessions, these creeds, they, they unify the church. And in another sense, these confessions, or like ours, are statements. They guard against false doctrine. Even in recent times, there's been these. We've had them in our day. Uh, um, the Chicago, maybe some of you remember when it came out, 1978. I won't say how old I was, but I was too, old, too young to know this, but that's when it came. It's Chicago's statement on biblical errancy came out. And it was, I think, updated in 1982. Even this summer, just in August, maybe some of you heard in the news, the Nashville statement came out. A group of evangelicals come together to say, what, what do we hold in terms of gender, identity, or marriage? That sort of thing. That came out just really recently. A lot of people signing on to that statement. To these creeds, these statements. What do we believe? What's the Bible teaching? And they, and they tend to address subjects and uh, even uh, heresies of the age. That are out there. Well, even in our text, it's pretty interesting. If you look in Colossians, where we're at, two in verse, uh, we'll, we'll be in verse. Uh, let's see, six here, and it would seem based on verse four of this chapter two, there existed even arguments coming against the teaching that those in Colossae and Laodicea they had received. There was arguments going on. Uh, Paul says, verse 4, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. There's tension. There's arguments going on. And Paul desires their, their good order and their firmness of faith in Christ. Even verse 8, he encourages them not to be taken captive by human traditions or elemental spirits of the world and so forth. They're to be built up Again, towards Christ, built up in Christ. As you receive, so walk. Look at verse 6 there. It does say, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Here's what's interesting. One commentator pointed this out in verse 6. There is a confessional statement of faith type statement even in this. Here's what he says. Paul is probably intentionally echoing then what was arguably the early Christian confession that, quote, Jesus is Lord. You see it there? Therefore, as you receive, I think in the Greek it says the, the Christ, the Jesus, the Lord, or something like the Christ, Jesus, the Lord. Kind of this confessional statement. I'll continue with his, his quote. By alluding to this confession, Jesus is Lord, here at a key transitional point in the letter, Paul connects a fundamental expression of what it means to be a Christian with the Christology that he has developed in the earlier part of the letter. So here's a phrase. I'm continuing to read him. Jesus Christ is Lord is a succinct way of saying that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, the head of the body, the church. These are all former statements here in Colossians. If you were to look back, uh, the mystery of God, he's the repository of all wisdom and knowledge. It is this central confession with all its varied and far-reaching implications to which the Colossians need to return in order to ward off the threat of the false teaching. So even in Scripture, we have this type of pattern of confessionalism or statement of faith saying Christ Jesus is the Lord to encompass all these other meanings. It's kind of a, almost even a shorthand of saying all of this. 
So we as a church, when we have a statement of faith, we join a long line of confessions and creeds, catechisms, statements of belief, not only to articulate really what binds us together as followers of Christ, but to guard against false doctrine. Here's what is a helpful statement in this Article 3, and I think it begins in the right way. At the core of any statement or any creed or confession is the rock solid. The core is the Bible. The Bible is the basis for what we believe. Not our statement of faith. You can find it at the end of your notes here. We'll be looking through it in a little bit. Uh, But it's the Bible. The first sentence here in Article 3. We affirm the Holy Bible as the inspired, inerrant Word of God and the sole basis for our beliefs and actions. Again, there's language here. 2 Timothy 3.16, right? All Scripture is breathed out by God. Profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. It's inerrant. Does not have, it's infallible. It does not make an error. Proverbs 30 verse 5 says, Every word of God proves true. Just reading some verses here. Psalm 119, 160. Is the Bible true? Is it error-free? Yeah. Psalm 119, 160. The sum of your word is truth. Every one of your righteous rules endures forever. And Matthew 24 answers, How long? He says, Matthew 24, 35, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So, sola, one of those solas of the Reformation, sola scriptura, Bible alone. So it's a good place to start. When we think of statement, what do we believe? What's our creed? What's our confession? To start by saying we believe the Bible is at the foundation of any statement we would make of what we believe. It's utmost, not our statement of faith. So then why have it? Why have this statement of faith or these core biblical doctrines? The last sentence of this Article 3 says, Uh, Rightly so, our statement of faith is not an inspired document, but is helpful for assistance in controversy and preventing theological drift. Back in Colossians here, Paul urges those at Colossae to walk in Christ, be built up, be established, or another way to say it, be confirmed in the faith just as you were taught. And then he admonishes, see that no one takes you captive by philosophy and so forth. Empty the seat according to human tradition. I think the summaries of the gospel contained in our statement of faith, they serve to assist in controversy. Where we come to face false teaching and doctrine, our statement of faith, it's a framework for what we hold as biblical teaching on whatever the matter is. This is where it's crucial that what we believe is based on the Scripture and not the traditions of man. So again, our statement is subject to, it's not over the teaching of the Bible. It's a tool. It's a means for our being built up in the faith and our unity in the Gospel. And it also prevents, you see the word in there, prevents theological drift. I, as your pastor, I cannot come up and just teach any doctrine that comes to my mind on a Sunday and say, I think I'll go this way. Maybe I'm this way. I I am. There's an expectation that I'm going to teach what is in accord with our statement of faith. And I gladly do so. But that's the expectation. And it's right. 
And where I drift, or where an elder drifts, or where a teacher drifts, where we drift, it's to bring back and to say, we have a document based on the Word of God to guard the teaching and what we teach here. I want you to hear a quote from Charles Spurgeon. <clears throat> and he was quoting, um, I think I even, I think it was in this. Uh, you can look at this if you want. This is basically from 1689, what they had, the Baptists had anyway. There was the West, Westminster, kind of the Presbyterian uh, version, and then the Baptists made their own, uh, the London Baptists. 1689, and Spurgeon quotes about this particular statement of faith. He says this. He says, This little volume is not issued as an authoritative rule or code of faith whereby you are to be fettered, chained. I'm translating for myself included. Uh, So it's not where you're chained, but it's as an assistance to you in controversy a confirmation in faith and a means of edification in righteousness. He's talking about this statement, this confession. He says, here the younger members of our church will have a body of divinity in small compass and by means of the scriptural proofs will be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in them. Moms, dads, let me encourage you, take your children through the statement of faith. Their scriptures, we'll look at it in a minute, their scriptures at the bottom of each paragraph. Take them through it and explain. It's part of what we were doing this summer in our Sunday school class. It can be a great teaching time. Spurgeon continues, Be not ashamed of your faith. Remember, it is the ancient gospel of martyrs, confessors, reformers, and saints. Above all, it is the truth of God against which the gates of hell cannot prevail. Let your lives adorn your faith. Let your example adorn your creed. That's important, isn't it? He says, above all, live in Christ Jesus and walk in Him, giving credence to no teaching but that which is manifestly approved of Him and owned by the Holy Spirit. Cleave fast to the Word of God, which is here mapped out for you. Spurgeon saw that statement of faith of their day as a a map of the Word of God. It was not the driving or the walking itself. That's the Holy Scriptures. But it's, it's a map. Like a map gives an overview. It gives an overview of the scope of Scriptures. And when we all operate from the same map, we have a clear direction of where we're going. You all are getting to know, I love maps. Um... I don't have any up in... Well, I have one of Israel, but I, I just love maps. i got old one. This is an old one too. And this is one that's got Minnesota on it. I don't know how old it is. And it's, it's South Dakota. Well, yeah, we're here, so it's not that old. Uh, North Dakota and so forth. It's got a map. We learn a lot of things from a map. For instance, we know where Minneapolis is. We know it's north of here. If you didn't, we're learning that, but it's north. And we know how to get there. There's roads to get to Minneapolis. And there's a certain way. You cannot get on I-94 and head west forever for you will not get to Minneapolis that way. You must turn at some point uh, or however your favorite route is to get up there. It shows us the way. But the map is not the drive, is it? When you drive to Minneapolis or Rochester, you got the map, maybe you have Google with you, giving you directions, but you're actually driving there and you're seeing the trees or you're seeing an eagle fly by, or you're seeing the different buildings and all these different things as you drive. 
Okay, here's the illustration. I don't know if it's perfect, but I think it's helpful. Our statement of faith, what we believe is like this map. It's a road work. It's a broad picture. It's here's what's going on in scriptures in terms of the gospel, who God is, the Bible. How are you saved? How are you supposed to live as a Christian? What are we to be as a church? It's a map. The driving, the trees, the enjoyment of the trip, the actual going there is the word of God. Okay? It's the standard is the actual driving. It just like the map, statement of faith gives just a brief idea. Here's what's contained in there. And so this statement of faith does that. It's it's the guardrails of our doctrine. It says it says you're going to Minneapolis, you're not going to get there going this way. Here is the way and it's built around again around the Bible. It's a tool to guard us as we read the Bible to give us an idea in the mind of what's ahead. So what we're going to do today is a little different. We're going to end our time by actually reading this statement. And if the guys want to come up here and grab a microphone and be ready, uh, you're going to find the statement of faith at the back of your uh, handout here. It is, uh, let's see, there it is. Page 13, if you want to turn there. Wayne Grudem in his book on systematic theology, he makes this statement before we read this here. He says, he says, often in the study of theology, the response of the Christian should be similar to that of Paul in reflecting on the long theological argument that he has just completed at the end of Romans 11.32. He breaks forth into joyful praise at the richness of the doctrine which God has enabled him to express. Here's how Paul ends chapter 11. He says, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Each of us elders is taking a section of this statement. Uh, Perhaps many of you have read this and you don't have to raise a hand if you have not yet. Okay, no excuses today. We're going to have read it and hang with us as we read it. But do more than just hang with us. Don't fade off and go, yeah, it's just words. I don't know. I don't understand some of these. Let these words remind you again of the gospel, of what we have in Christ, the word of God that we preach from and that we read from during the week. And our great Savior. So I hope we end our time having read through this really as an act of worship of who our God is and learning more about Him. So there's a certain order. I'm going to just stand in the order where we're at so I know uh, where we're going. And uh, just listen. You can follow along as we read. <laughs> yeah, This is so we're the least confused. So we got it. Okay. All right. Well, we will not be referencing all of the scripture references, but as Mike said, you know, in your own time, it'd be good to to uh, uh, read from scripture the supportive uh, passages. But beginning with scripture, 
All Scripture, the 66-book canon, is given by inspiration of God, by which we mean that God superintended human authors so that using their individual human personalities, they composed and recorded without error His message to man in the words of the original autographs. The Bible constitutes the only infallible rule of faith and practice, being fully sufficient for every human need and all that pertains to life and godliness. In matters not addressed by the Bible, what is true and right must be assessed by criteria consistent with the teachings of Scripture. Whereas there may be several applications of any given passage of Scripture, there is but one true contextual and or prophetical interpretation. The precise meaning is to be found as one diligently applies the literal, grammatical, historical method of interpretation under the leading of the Holy Spirit. It is the responsibility of all believers to give themselves to the diligent study of the Word of God in order to be able to ascertain the true intent and meaning of the Scripture, recognizing that proper, accurate application is binding on all generations. However, this personal responsibility does not change the fact that the truth of Scripture always stands in judgment of men. Never do men stand in judgment of it. The Trinity. There is one living, sovereign, all-glorious God who is an infinite, all-knowing spirit, perfect in all his attributes and substance, one in essence, essence, eternally existing in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, all of whom are one God, deserving precisely the same homage, confidence, and obedience. God the Father. God the Father, the first person of the Trinity, orders and directs all things according to his own purpose and grace. By his will, all things were created, and they, and they continue to exist according to his good pleasure. God the Father upholds and sustains all things in accord with his eternal, all-wise purposes to glorify himself, yet in such a way that he never sins nor ever condemns a person unjustly, but that, he ordain, he, but that his ordaining and governing all things is not incompatible with the moral accountability of all persons created in his image. His fatherhood involves both his designation within the Trinity and his relationship with his redeemed. As creator, he is the God of all men, but he is spiritual father only to believers. He has graciously chosen from eternity past those whom he would have as his own. He, he saves from sin and adopts as his own all who come to him through Jesus Christ, and he becomes, upon adoption, father to his own. God the Son. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His eternal Son, the second person of the Godhead, Jesus the Messiah, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. When the eternal Son became flesh, He took on a fully human nature so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without confusion or mixture. Therefore, the person... Jesus Christ was and is truly God and truly man, yet one Christ and the only mediator between God and man. Jesus Christ lived without sin, though he endured the common infirmities and temptations of human life. 
Throughout his ministry, he preached and taught with truth and authority unparalleled in human history. He also worked miracles, demonstrating his divine right and power over all creation. Jesus Christ suffered voluntarily in fulfillment of God's redemptive plan, was crucified under Pontius Pilate, died, was buried, and on the third day rose from the dead to vindicate the saving work of his life and death and to take his place as the invincible, everlasting Lord of glory, guaranteeing the future resurrection to life for all believers. He gave many compelling evidences of his bodily resurrection and then ascended bodily into heaven, where he is seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for his people on the basis of his all-sufficient sacrifice for sin. He will one day return judging all men, both the saved and unsaved in every generation. God, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a divine person, eternal, possessing all the attributes of deity. In all the divine attributes, he is co-equal and co-substantial with the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit has always been at work in the world, sharing in the work of creation, awakening faith in the remnant of God's people, performing signs and wonders, giving triumphs in battle, empowering the preaching of prophets, and inspiring the writings of Scripture. Yet, when God had made atonement for sin and ascended to the right hand of the Father, he inaugurated a new era of the Spirit by pouring out the promise of the Father on his church. We teach that the present ministry of the Holy Spirit inaugurated at Pentecost consists of restraining sin in the world and convicting the world of sin righteousness, and judgment. He also, in the present age, regenerates believers in Christ, baptizes them into the church, the body of Christ, indwells them permanently, illuminates them in their study of in their study of Scripture, seals them unto the day of redemption, and bestows spiritual gifts upon each one. Man. Man was created in the image and likeness of God apart from any evolutionary process. Although God created man morally upright, he was led astray from God's word and wisdom by the subtlety of Satan's deceit and chose to take what was forbidden and thus declared his independence from distrust for and disobedience toward his all good and gracious creator. Therefore, our first parents by this sin fell from their original innocence and communion with God. God's intention in the creation of man was that man should glorify him, enjoy fellowship with him, live his life according to his will, and by this accomplish his purpose for man in the world. In Adam's sin of disobedience to the revealed will and word of God, man lost his innocence, incurred the penalty of spiritual and physical death, became subject to the wrath of God and became inherently corrupt and utterly incapable of choosing or doing that which is acceptable to God apart from divine grace. Man possesses no ability to recover himself and therefore is hopelessly lost. Man will never seek after God on his own. He is enslaved to sin. Spiritual things are complete foolishness to him. His heart is deceitful and desperately sick and will only do evil continually. Therefore, man's salvation is nothing of himself, 
but wholly by the sovereign act of God through the redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because all men were in Adam, his guilt was justly imputed to every man. And a nature corrupted by Adam's sin has been transmitted to all men of all ages, Jesus Christ being the only exception. Therefore, all men are sinners by nature, by choice, and by divine declaration. Although man is radically and pervasively depraved, he, by the common grace of God, does not always fulfill his full potential to sin. Salvation. Salvation is the free gift of God brought to men by his grace and received by faith alone in Christ, who died for our sins and rose again. Salvation is apart from any sacraments, good works, or human merit. Atonement. The ultimate moving cause of the atonement is found in the good pleasure of God. God's good pleasure to save sinners by a substitutionary atonement served to express His love and justice. It was the justice of God that required the demands of the law to be met and His love that provided a way of escape for lost sinners. Considering the extent of the sacrifice which Christ paid, the atonement is the only possible means to the salvation of sinful man. If there were any other way to satisfy the justice of God, it would have been rendered. The atonement made propitiation, a wrath-satisfying payment to God, reconciling elect sinners to Himself who were the objects of His judicial wrath. This was accomplished by the sacrificial covering of their sin in satisfaction of God's justice and the righteous demands of His law. The Scripture sets forth the atoning work of Christ as being fully sufficient to accomplish its eternal purpose. Scripture affirms the comprehensive atoning work of Christ as fully accomplishing all that was necessary for the wrath of God to be satisfied, our sins to be removed, our souls to be declared righteous, our relationship with God restored, and our person to be redeemed. Understanding its purpose and effect, the atonement cannot be universal or automatic with regard to its redemptive design, but has as its objects only those who are brought into the saving grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ according to the kind intention of His will. Regeneration. Regeneration is that supernatural work of the Holy Spirit by which the soul is born again and divine life is imparted. Apart from the effectual work of the Spirit, no one would come to faith because all are dead in trespasses and sins. Man is hostile to God, morally unable to submit to God or please Him because the pleasures of sin appear greater than the pleasures of God. So, in regeneration, the Spirit triumphs over all resistance, wakens the dead, removes the blindness, and manifests Christ in such a compellingly beautiful way through the Gospel that He becomes irresistibly attractive to the regenerate heart. The Holy Spirit does this saving work in connection with the presentation of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Genuine regeneration will manifest itself in fruits worthy of repentance as demonstrated in righteous attitudes and conduct as the believer submits to the control of the Holy Spirit in his life through faithful obedience to the word of God. Justification. 
The justification of sinners is an act of God by which He legally declares the righteous those who, through faith in Christ, repent of their sins and confess Him as Sovereign Lord. This righteousness is apart from any virtue or work of man and involves the imputation of our sins to Christ and the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us. By this means, God is enabled to be just and the justifier of the ones who has faith in Jesus. Sanctification. Every believer is promised positional, progressive, and ultimate eternal sanctification. Every believer is sanctified, set apart, unto God by justification and is therefore declared to be holy and identified as a saint. This sanctification is positional and instantaneous, having to do with the believer standing before God, not his present walk or condition, and should not be confused with progressive sanctification. Progressive sanctification begins at the point of conversion, by which the practice of the believer is continually brought closer to the position he enjoys through justification. Through the empowering of the Spirit and the grace of God, the believer is both enabled and compelled to live a life of increasing holiness and conformity to the will of God, becoming more and more like Lord Jesus Christ. In this respect, every saved person is involved in a daily conflict the new creation in Christ doing battle against the flesh. Yet adequate provision is made for victory through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. That being so, we cannot expect a sinless perfection on this earth, but the believer's life will necessarily be characterized by the pursuit of holiness. There is an ultimate eternal sanctification wherein the believer will experience complete freedom from sin, being transformed in all ways, into what he has been declared by God to be positionally. Assurance. All who are born of the Holy Spirit through faith in Christ can have assurance of salvation and are eternally secure in Christ. All who are justified will win the lifelong fight of faith. They will persevere in faith and never surrender to the enemy of their souls. This perseverance is the promise of the new covenant obtained by the blood of Christ and worked in us by God Himself. This God-worked perseverance does not serve to diminish our vigilance, but only to empower and encourage it. The church. All who place their faith in Christ Jesus are immediately placed by the Holy Spirit into one universal church, the body and bride of Christ, with Christ Himself as the all-supplying, all-sustaining, all-supreme, and all-authoritative head. It is God's will that the universal church find its expression in local churches in which believers agree together to hear the word of God proclaimed, to engage in corporate worship, to practice the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper, to build each other's faith through ministries of love and fellowship, to hold each other accountable in the obedience of faith through biblical discipline, and to engage in local and world evangelization. The church is a body in which each member should find a suitable ministry for his gifts. It is the household of God in which the Spirit dwells. It is the pillar and bulwark of God's truth in a truth-denying world. And it is a city set on a hill so that men may see the light of its good deeds and give glory to the Father in heaven. 
Each local church should recognize and affirm the divine calling of spiritually qualified men to give leadership to the church through the role of pastor and or elder in the ministry of the word and prayer. Additionally, God has also appointed deacons and deaconesses to the operational and administrative responsibilities of the body. Women are not to fill the role of pastor or elder, nor are they to teach or exercise authority over a man in the local church, but are encouraged to use their gifts in appropriate roles that edify the body of Christ and spread the gospel. According to clear biblical instruction, unrepentant, habitual sin should not be tolerated within God's church. Every believer is subject to the body of Christ, and every believer is to strive to turn a sinner from the error of his ways. If a person does not repent, upon following the biblical pattern, they are to be treated as an unbeliever. Nevertheless, the goal of church discipline is to seek the repentance and the restoration of the sinning brother. The mission of the church is threefold. First, exalting the Lord. It is the primary mission of the church to bring glory to God consistent with his ultimate purpose for all the created order. The corporate gathering of the church is primarily and ultimately the exaltation of God in worship, prayer, and the preaching of his word. Second, building up the body. The saints are edified, that is built up through the means of grace by the instruction of the word, by biblical fellowship, and by the corporate observance of ordinances. Third, evangelizing the lost. Jesus Christ has given the church an enduring commission to evangelize the lost with this responsibility extending to every believer. Biblical evangelism must involve both the spoken word and the unspoken testimony of a life transformed by the grace of God in Christ. The ordinances. Christian baptism by immersion is the solemn and beautiful testimony of a believer showing forth his faith in the crucified, buried, and risen Savior and his union with him in death to sin and resurrection to new life. It is also a sign of fellowship and identification with the visible body of Christ and is a pledge in the presence of God and his saints to live a life of good conscience before him. Baptism has absolutely no saving merit or regenerative power. Salvation is entirely the work of Almighty God as accomplished on the cross by the Son and, and applied by the Holy Spirit. The Lord's Supper is the commemoration and proclamation of Christ's death until he comes as the, as the elements are a representation of the flesh and blood of Christ. The Lord's Supper is reserved for those who have been born of the Spirit of God and must always be preceded by sober, sober self-examination. These next two under social issues is a new uh, kind of add-on amendment uh, to this. thought it good to have definition of marriage and also uh, dealing with the, the unborn or human life in our statement of faith. So it reads as this, something that we'll vote on here in January. But social issues says, We believe that the institution of marriage was given by God in the beginning. And that in accordance with the creation account and the whole of Scripture shall be the union of one man and one woman as husband and wife. We believe that Almighty God is the creator and sustainer of all life. And for this reason, believe that every human life which begins at conception has value 
and worth and shall be treated as such regardless of age, race, or disability. The Christian life. Believers should be set apart unto the Lord Jesus Christ and affirm that the Christian life is a life of obedient righteousness demonstrated by continual pursuit of holiness. This pursuit of holiness is awakened and sustained by God's Spirit through His Word and prayer. The pursuit of holiness is seen not only in obedience to God, but also in such practices as prayer, evangelism, fasting, and Bible study. In this pursuit of holiness, the believer is not to withdraw in isolation from the world. Rather, the world is his God-ordained place of ministry as he exposes the deeds of darkness and brings the gospel message to the whole world. Death and last things. Physical death involves a separation of soul and body with no loss of immaterial consciousness. The souls of the unsaved are held in torment awaiting final judgment, while the souls of the redeemed are made perfect in holiness, are received into paradise, and are taken consciously into the presence of Christ. At the end of the age, Jesus Christ will return to this earth personally, visibly, physically, and suddenly in power and great glory to translate his church from this earth, and so the saints shall always be with the Lord." We teach the bodily resurrection of all men, the saved to an eternal life in God's presence, and the unsaved to judgment and everlasting punishment, cut off from the life of God forever. Let's pray together. Lord, we want to be built up in the faith, established, growing, maturing, being equipped Father, our statement is a help in this. We recognize, Lord, it's not your word, but it's a, a, a bringing together, Lord, a, a, of what you have taught us in your word. Lord, help us to live this out. Help us to live as your disciples in this world, among one another and among those we will see this week that we are in contact with. And Lord, may you use this statement as a help to us to guide us. How do we speak to that person or this person, and may it be a, a help to our lives. And uh, we just ask these things, Lord. We praise your name for your great glory shown in salvation, saving a people who did not deserve it, but you were merciful, and your justice provided a way, and in your love through the cross brought salvation for your own. So thank you, Lord. We praise you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.